from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today. It is my pleasure to be with you and be your guide here into the weekend. We've got a great show for you for the next hour. A lot to cover from what's happened in Washington, D.C. this week. It seems, as always, when was the last time we had a slow week in the nation's capital? It seems like it's been a while, unfortunately. Today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a new issue brief that Family Research Council has released on the real Planned Parenthood. We'll talk with the author about that. We are also going to talk about whether the LGBT population has really exploded. Some explosive numbers in growth. Uh, Unsurprisingly, you'll see that uh, younger people are much more likely to identify that way. Uh, We will talk with Peter Sprague about that. We will close out the program with David Clausen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, talking about safety. How should we think about safety? Certainly the last year has been a lot of conversation about safety with respect to the coronavirus, but it's not the only risk that we have in life, physical risks. But we're going to talk through how it is that Christians should be thinking about safety in a world that apparently has a lot more risks every day. But to start off the program, uh, we are going to talk about a hearing earlier this week in the House Judiciary Committee. They met to talk about the Capitol riot in early January and domestic terrorism. And the hearing was on the rise of domestic terrorism in America. The discussion came one day after a Senate panel on the insurrection uh, to talk about what our nation's leaders have to say and what we should be doing uh, in response to a perceived, or is it real, uh, rise of domestic terrorism. And uh, at the beginning of that, we had uh, one comment from a congressman from Arizona. It's clip number one. Bobby, if you could play that to get us going. I hope that our hearing and the outcome of today will address all forms of domestic terrorism, no matter which ideology inspires that terrorism. The voice you hear there is Congressman Andy Biggs from the 5th District in Arizona, and he is with us to talk about this hearing. Congressman Biggs, thank you so much for taking the time. Joseph, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, we are glad to have you. We are glad that you were part of this conversation. And tell me at the, at the beginning, um, we, we heard kind of what your hopes were for that hearing. Uh, did the hearing itself meet your expectations of what you wanted to get accomplished? Well, not really. I mean, what we were talking about is what they were talking about is everybody who uh, is not a Democrat basically is a white supremacist and a domestic terrorist. I mean, that's really what they were they were after. And what uh, I was urging is that we let's take a let's take an honest look. There's going to be some people on both sides um, and in the middle. I mean, you've got people uh, who who commit acts of terrorism and. Basically, I guess a couple of things that we did get straight that, that people wanted to take care of was that uh, every one of their panelists on the on the left side all admitted they all admitted that uh, we have enough laws on this. We just need to enforce the laws and we need to investigate. But I think my friends on the other side of the aisle, they want to do things like really investigate and, and see what you're listening to, what you're watching, because, by the way, 
um, they think CFR is a, a hate group and that type of thing. And, and if you support Trump, you're a, a part of a hate group and that type of thing. Well, it, it is good to hear that uh, they were not specifically calling for additional laws because I feel like the, the do-something disease in Washington, D.C. has uh, kind of this, this instinctive reaction to pass another law when something bad happens. But we do have a lot of laws, and we certainly have laws against uh, terrorism, domestic or otherwise. Now, as part of this conversation, um, did you see any evidence? What is your what is your perspective on the idea that domestic terrorism is is on the rise? Is it on the rise? Is it stable? Where are we at historically? Well, they didn't they didn't present any evidence like that, to be honest with you, and that's and that's part of the problem um, because they they basically gauged and in, in, and included all kinds of things as uh, uh, terrorism that may or may not be domestic terrorism. And, um, uh, you know, you had one guy who was on the panel, for instance, for the other side, and, and he had advocated for uh, bombing the Trump Tower Hotel in Turkey. Well, that's we, we would call that maybe, I don't know, a terrorist act if they did that. But uh, they, they, they did not adduce any evidence to say it's on the rise. Um, in fact, uh, the number of, of domestic terrorist cases are fairly small, and they did not count any of the rioting over last summer. As domestic terrorism, how did they classify that, or did they? What, I mean, we did. We have had a year of unrest for sure, and, and there's no denying that. How would they have categorized uh, everything that we saw in 2020 in, in many of the cities around the country? Well, they were saying that uh, it was akin to a Super Bowl, uh, uh, pro, uh, you know, celebration. I mean, seriously, that's what the one guy said. This was, you know, there wasn't anything there. He couldn't explain the fact that there were billions of dollars and dozens of lives lost uh, in, in that type of activity. He just equated it all with um, basically a Super Bowl party. That's that's what he said. Well, uh I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess there, there, there is some unruliness after a Super Bowl victory, depending on the city that you're in. Um, that has happened. But I've never seen it happen for months. I mean, Portland doesn't even have a football team. I think they right. would be bothered by the idea yeah. that this was all attributable to a Super Bowl party, right? Yeah, I think they would. And, and uh, in, in fact, many of the people and originally that supported it, including the, the mayor of Portland, eventually got fed up with it because it was damaging and, and right. violent and, and destructive. So, Was there a... Uh, was there a conclusion? Was there a takeaway from the conversation that happened in this committee? Is anybody what, – what was the goal, um, practically speaking, or was there a practical goal? Their, their goal, practically speaking, was to uh, see if they could embarrass Republicans and uh, further their narrative that uh, if you voted for President Trump or a Trump supporter, you're some kind of racist xenophobe who uh, causes violence. Uh, throughout the community. That's what they were trying to get at. And I think we fought that back pretty hard um, and did a pretty good job uh, debunking that narrative. Okay. Well, um, Congressman Biggs, I understand you now have to go. I'm, I'm, I'm getting sorry. Uh, some indications that you do. Yes, they've just called me up to speak in, uh, in, a, in a committee hearing. A different well, committee hearing, so. as much as we hate to uh, admit it, that is more important than talking to, uh, to me this evening. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Uh, thank you for being a, a voice for reason, and thanks for the time. Hey, thanks, Joseph. I hope we can do more, uh, another one longer next time. Thank you.
look forward to it. And, and that is the voice of Congressman Andy Biggs from the 5th Legislative District in Arizona, who was part of the uh, the hearing in the House on the rise of domestic terrorism in America. And he and he just started and introduced this conversation about what was actually happening in this hearing where the the stated purpose of the hearing, of course, is to uh, investigate the rise of domestic terrorism. The first question I asked him there that I think is important to just sit on for a moment is what evidence have they presented that there is, in fact, a an increase in domestic terrorism. Are we seeing uh, bombs being uh, set off in cities in a way that we haven't before? Are we seeing terrorist activity? We all have a sense of what we think terrorism is. And what he said is there wasn't any evidence presented um, on th that would suggest we are actually seeing an increase. The sad reality is Human nature being what it is, people do bad things. And that is, of course, not a partisan statement, and it is not a partisan problem. You have people on uh, the far left, the far right, however you want to describe that, the left, the right, the middle. Um, people who, uh, for whatever reason, take matters into their own hands, and they end up doing violent and destructive things out of frustration, trying to... Um, trying to make their point, and they resort to terrorism to do so. But I, I'm going to play another clip here from uh, Andy No, who's a journalist who's really done a lot of this, uh, a lot of investigation of these issues, a lot of the civil unrest that we saw throughout 2020 that has now spilled into 2021. I think it's clip three. Bobby, do you have that one, Andy No? You don't. Okay, well... Uh, Bobby does not have that at the moment, so we are going to, um, I thought that was in the queue, but um, it is a clip that essentially has him talking about Antifa, because Andy No is, is, a, is a journalist, and he has, he has cataloged many of the, uh, a, oh, clip number five, okay, I think we got it. Bobby, if you got it, go ahead and play it there. I'm encouraged today to see lawmakers discussing the important subject of domestic terrorism. But I'm concerned that our representatives are increasingly viewing this through a partisan lens. This puts all Americans at risk. Those speaking before and after me can illuminate and educate us on far-right terrorism, a threat extremely well-tracked by government agencies, nonprofits, and journalists. Much less understood is the terrorism threat from the far left, particularly Antifa. And, and there you have Andy No bringing up the issue of Antifa or Antifa or however we are pronouncing that these days. And, and an organization that has, as the congressman uh, pointed out, caused or at least is connected to the cause of billions of dollars of damage. When you're dealing with riots, it's hard to know who broke what glass uh, who, who broke what window or turned over what car or set what building on fire, right? So I won't attribute it all to that particular organization because there's been lots of unrest. But billions of dollars of damage, and Antifa exists for the purpose of being disruptive. You know, for months, uh, night after night, uh, assaults on federal buildings in, in Portland because they are frustrated with what the federal government represented and what that building represented. Um, but again, let's make sure that we understand, and what this House committee was not understanding, is that extremism, and we would all agree that terrorism is extremism, is not a partisan problem. And Bobby, we have another clip, uh, again, of Congressman Biggs 
And, and can we play that of him talking and asking that, making that point during the committee? We also cannot forget the attack that took place in 2012 at the Family Research Council when Floyd Corkins attempted to, quote, kill as many people as he could, close quote, at the Family Research Council Center in Washington, D.C. According to the sentencing memorandum, he told the FBI he wanted to kill the people in the building and then smear a Chick-fil-A sandwich on their face. He was inspired to attack the FRC because it had been identified on Southern Poverty Law Center's hate map. This one is, of course, very personal to those of us who are connected to the Family Research Council because a man from the, undisputedly from the left politically went into the office of the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C. with the stated intent of killing as many people as he could, had a backpack full of Chick-fil-A sandwiches, and his stated goal with those sandwiches was to shoot people and then throw a sandwich at their feet as a way of, you know, whatever association he had with Chick-fil-A and, and ideas that he didn't like. You will not be surprised, likely, to hear that there was not a congressional investigation in the rise of domestic terrorism after that incident happened. And that was not the purpose of this hearing, is to investigate why are people on the left? Uh, why, are they, uh, why are they violent? And, of course, some of them are, and, of course, some people on the right are violent. And that is simply a function of human nature. It is not a function of political ideology or political philosophy. So what we want, and, and, and we are all going to agree that violence is not the way to handle things in almost all cases, and certainly not politically, and that we need to do what we can to make our country safer, to weed out extremism, to deal with our differences in, a, in an agreeable and a peaceable way that allows what we jo enjoy and love to endure. But if we are going to have that happen, we have to investigate these questions honestly. And that's got to be the goal. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, 
check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the world's foremost violator of religious freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins as we head into this weekend and talk about all things that happened in Washington, D.C. this week. And we are now going to talk about a brand new issue brief released this week by Family Research Council, by the director of the Center for Human Dignity, Mary Zock, talking about the real planned parenthood mary welcome to the program thanks so much for having me joseph well as always we are glad to have you and thankful for your work um keeping us informed of sometimes things that we wish we did not need to be informed about and certainly planned parenthood and their uh, dastardly deeds is on that list but tell us the title of this is the real planned parenthood um what is the real planned parenthood that your report discusses that you think we need to know about so Planned Parenthood is the leader of the culture of death. You know, they they performed 354,871 abortions this past year. Um, that's that's about 972 abortions a day, almost almost a thousand abortions every single day, um, almost a thousand American lives lost to abortions done by Planned Parenthood every single day, and and to. To add to that, they have become the second largest provider of cross-gender or cross-sex hormone treatment, um, so-called cross-gender hormone treatment. Uh, they're, they're an organization that, that profits by exploiting people, um, and you know, they're, they're, they're a terrible organization and receiving a lot of yeah. taxpayer funding to do so. Let me get clarification on that. They are now the second largest provider of cross-sex hormones, you say? Is that right? They are, yes. What's the connection between Planned Parenthood and cross-sex hormone distribution? Well, Planned Parenthood's mission from its beginning, starting with Margaret Sanger, was a racist, eugenist mission. Um, they, They started with the idea of denying the science that, that a person is a person from the moment of conception until the moment of natural death. And, and, and so this, their, their, their foray into the cross-sex hormone dis- providing 
um, is really just another a continuation of their mission of denying science to exploit people. Um, this time, they simply deny that you know the, that there is a chromosomal reality to whether you are male or female. Um, but but they do this at the expense of people, um, and you know providing these hormones to teenagers has grave consequences. In some cases. Uh, those consequences include sterilization, um, which which Planned Parenthood just doesn't seem to care about. I, I think it, 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 on, in one sense it is it seems totally inappropriate. It's like you know Burger King selling tacos to have Planned Parenthood in, involved in the in the gender uh, reassignment business because they don't seem to be connected. But I think you make a valid point that uh, they're just they are in the business of nihilism and helping people um, you know deny the the realities of the world around them and and try to escape them even though the consequences are always worse. And I, and I will, while we're on that subject, I will commend people if they have not seen it. Senator Rand Paul's uh, questioning of Rachel Levine, who is a, uh, a nominee to Health and Human Services. Rand Paul gave maybe the best um, critique of the transgender chaos that I've heard from a politician in a very long time during that questioning. It's all over YouTube if you can find it there. But back to our, our main topic here. Um, Tell us, what were you surprised about in this report um, that you think is, 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 was most surprising to you? Well, I can't say I was especially surprised, but I, but I imagine the general public who believes that Planned Parenthood is a health care provider would be, would be incredibly shocked to learn that over the last 10 years, the services that they provide for women that, that would be considered part of health care, things like breast cancer exam, uh, breast exams and uh, prenatal services and cancer screenings, all of these decreased by over, by at least over 65%. So significant decrease in those. Their abortion services though, their, their, the number of abortions they've committed each year increased by 7.7% and their revenue <laughs> increased by 57% over that 10 years. So if you want to know where Planned Parenthood makes their money, just look at those numbers. Those are shocking numbers, and I actually – I don't know if you have that on you, but I I wonder how much of that is attributable to their uh, expanding into the cross-sex hormone market. Is is that a significant percentage of their revenue now? I don't know the exact percentage of their revenue that it is, but if you think about if if a teenager – begins a cross-sex hormone regimen, they need to come back to Planned Parenthood for follow-up visits. They need to come back to Planned Parenthood for adjusting the levels. Um, It it creates a repeat client. And so this is certainly one one of their newest cash cows. And, and that's an important point. Now, I think a lot of people who, who don't don't understand that Planned Parenthood really is a business, any business you want repeat customers. And one of the things that Planned Parenthood has always emphasized is getting 
children, and they often are targeting children, on monthly prescriptions. It requires them to come in over and over and over again so that Planned Parenthood can send a bill often to taxpayers. In many states, they send the bill directly to taxpayers for that contraception and, you know, whoops, if they get, uh, if they get pregnant anyway, then they just give them an abortion, which is more money that particular month. But that ongoing long-term relationship with, with young women is the thing that makes them all the money. Now, what it, what what is in in the um, in the brief that you, and again you can you can find it at uh, planned parent uh, frc.org/slash/planned-parenthood-facts and read about the real Planned Parenthood. Do you have any uh, solutions, goals? What are you proposing? I propose that we defund Planned Parenthood, that we expose them for the terrible organization that they are that instead of actually helping women exploits them and that instead we put money into pregnancy resource centers that actually give women options and actually provide them with support well we are all with you in that endeavor mary zock director of the center for human dignity thanks for joining us today thanks so much for having me joseph and on the other side of the break, we are going to talk to Peter Sprigg about a new survey results. LGBT identification is off the charts. We'll talk about why on the other side. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. It is a 
pleasure and an honor to be with you. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins this afternoon. And as a reminder, you can find this show and all shows at uh, TonyPerkins.com. You can go there and find the uh, the recording of this because I know you're going to want to send it to everybody you know because we are just bringing it to you today. And bringing it to you now is Peter Sprigg, who is the Senior Fellow for Policy Studies at Family Research Council. And this is a special day, and we'll talk about why in a moment. But Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joseph. Well, we, we've got this, uh, this new study released by Gallup. 5.6% of Americans now identify as LGBT. This is up 1.1% from 2017. What gives? What's your response to this? Well, uh, I think that this is an indication of um, the uh, social contagion, if you will, that we see particularly among the younger generation where um, the LGBT identification uh, is simply increasing because there is more uh, affirmation being given to, to people who identify that way uh, within that generation. And, you know, you mentioned the 1.1 since 2017. It's actually up 60% just since 2012. That's in eight years from 2012 to 2020. Um, that kind of increase is not something that would happen naturally. What's uh, up 60%? Sort of, Clarify that for me. Uh, well, the uh, self-identification as LGBT was 3.5% of the population in okay. 2012 and 5.6% in 2020. So that's a 60% increase. Incredible numbers. And of course, if we if we dig into this in any depth, we'll see that much of this has to do with just definitions, because the T has really taken over the LGBT world, I think. And T is now defined so broadly that, uh, you know, any boy who doesn't like to just scratch himself and spit and fix cars is told that he's transgender and is now identifying as such. Is that part of this? I think it's definitely part of this, that uh, anyone who is in any way uncomfortable with their with their body or lacks confidence in their masculinity or femininity, which, you know, includes a lot of people in, uh, as a normal developmental process in childhood and adolescence. Um, but those people only today, unlike any previous generation, only today are they being told, oh, well, you might be transgender and um, and, and maybe you should consider that possibility. Um, one, of the, one of the other sort of numbers, there's all these amazing multiples in this number in terms of the generational difference. Uh, I, I happen to be in the baby boomer generation where only 0.2% of baby boomers identify as transgender. Those in Generation Z born after 1997, 1.8% identify as transgender, nine times higher than my generation. Uh, and I, I think it's uh, clearly got to be social contagion that's responsible for that. And this is remarkable, and I think it's important to know this data. And I'm 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 proud of Gallup, frankly, for releasing this because this is going to be um, this is going to provide a problem, mostly because this is does not seem to be consistent with the narrative that all of this is biological, because we've been hearing that for for a generation at least now that every 
every member of the LGBT community is such because they were born that way. There's nothing they can do. It's left-handed, right-handed, brown eyes, blue eyes. Why on earth would we, would we be critical of this? Does there seem to be any recognition of that in the study or in just kind of the chatter about the study? I don't, you know, I haven't seen Gallup making any acknowledgement of that, but I think you're absolutely right. That is one of the important implications for our listeners to understand is that um, if you believe, I mean, there was always a problem with suggesting that LGBT identification is biological because if if you believe in evolution, as most of the uh, liberals who support this agenda do, um, then y- you would have to believe that this would be something that would not be advantageous to reproduction and therefore would be disfavored by evolution. But um, even if something like this could be caused by evolutionary po- processes or biological ones, it can't possibly increase at that kind of rate within the population as a result just of biological processes. There has to to be a social um, influence at work. Yeah, and, and just to be clear about the numbers that we're talking about here, we've seen a just over 1% increase, which doesn't sound that big. In a country of 300 million, 1% is 3 million people. So in the last three years, we now have 3 million more people who are identifying as LGBT. And I think to the point, your point, Peter, um, the the... I think it's a much better explanation to assume that this has something to do with uh, social contagion, what's going on culturally, rather than it is what's going on biologically. And But Peter, we have one more uh, minute left here with you, um, not only in the program, but also I know that uh, today is actually your last day at FRC. You've been here for, is it 18, 20 years? Uh 19 and a half years. Yeah, almost 20 years. 19 and a half years. And, and so while we have you, just let me say uh, thank you so much for your service to Family Research Council, really to the country. Uh, you have done so much good in helping people understand the world that they live in. You are greatly appreciated. You will be missed, but we know that uh, your future will be bright and God will continue to use you. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. It's been an honor. That is Peter Sprigg, and we are... So thankful for him. He's a senior fellow for policy studies at Family Research Council for now. Uh, but he is, he is moving on as of today. Stay with us right after the break. We're going to send you home with a discussion about safety, thinking biblically. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. 
For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. Great to be with you. We are just about to the one-year anniversary of 15 Days to Flatten the Curve. America has faced the coronavirus for nearly a year now. Schools have closed. Churches have been closed. Some are open now. Most are open now, in fact. And some normalcy is kind of returning, but we still have Dr. Fauci telling us uh, that we should maybe be wearing masks into 2022. Now, we'll set some of that aside, but what we want to talk about is in this year of the coronavirus, we've spent a lot of time thinking about, is it safe? Is it dangerous? Are we going to hurt ourselves? Are we going to hurt somebody else? How should Christians think about safety? The issue of risk. And to have that conversation with us is FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, David Claussen. David, great to talk to you again. Well, good to be back on the show with you, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, we are always glad to have you. And I think, um, start off by telling us, uh, do you think the church, when we, this issue of safety, how are we doing? Are we... Um, are we thinking correctly about this? Are we thinking appropriately about uh, safety and weighing that against all of the other risks there are in life? It, it, that's such a good question, Joseph. I'm glad we're talking about it because this is, I think, first of all, we need to recognize this This is has become a divisive question. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing friends divided over this, families divided over this, even churches divided on exactly how to think through 
proper precautions, uh, you know, necessary safety measures versus not being ruled by fear. And, and frankly, I, I think we have to, that's a, a church by church, family by family kind of uh, outlook. I, you know, I think some churches are doing better than others. And I think some could be encouraged uh, to not be as fearful and to open up and try to uh, return to normalcy uh, sooner rather than later. Well, I think you're right. We're wrestling with this. Is, do you think – is this a choice between essentially recklessness and fearfulness? Is that Are those the two cho- options that we have? Because I feel like the debate is sometimes being framed that way. Those who are not that concerned are accused of being reckless or just careless about other people, and those who are kind of concerned are often accused of just being governed and guided by fear. Um, are those the options, or is there something else? That's definitely how the conversation has been framed now for months, Joseph, and I I really do uh, uh, wholeheartedly believe that that is a false dichotomy. Uh, I I don't think we have to choose between those two extremes. I I think, and I wrote a whole paper about this, um, about kind of the legal and theological reasons for why churches should be reopening. I wrote the first draft of that paper back in August. And so, you know, I think like all issues, um, and Joseph, you and I have talked about this on this show, that only 7% of Americans have a biblical worldview, uh, which means most Americans are not, even most people we go to church with are not thinking about this through the lens of Scripture. Um, But we need to take uh, even the issue of safety. You know, the Scripture says in in 2 Corinthians that we need to take every thought captive to God, and I think that includes this issue of safety. And we need to ask ourselves the question, uh, you you wrote a blog on this for our, our Worldview Wednesday blog on Wednesday, but the question we need to be asking is, what does God uh, say about safety? And I think when you read through the Scripture and your, your blog outlines some of the, the examples, you know, the, the pervading theme we see in God's Word is to not be fearful. So I think our impulse should be to be trusting God, not to be fearful. And, when you, and then when you approach something like the coronavirus, asking the question, you know, what, what you know, necessary precautions do we need to take? But our posture needs to be one of trusting the Lord and not being fearful. I think that's a really good point. And, and just in terms of biblical interpretation, I am not one of those who says, well, because this word is mentioned this many times in Scripture, that determines how important it is. And, and if it's mentioned more than another word, therefore it is a more important concept. But uh, that being said, um, th- depending on your translation, God and Jesus, they tell us more than 70 times, don't be afraid. But there are no examples that I am aware of, of God telling us to be safe. Do you think that matters? I think it does matter. And I know, Joseph, you talked about this in your blog, but, you know, our spiritual um, health, I think, should be of greater concern than our, our physical safety. Now, sure, I, I'm not at all telling anyone to be reckless or anyone to throw caution to the wind. Uh, I talk to pastors all the time and say, you know, if there are people in your congregation that you know are immunocompromised or elderly or you know in a population that really needs the vaccine, uh, encourage them to keep watching virtually or doing live stream. Um, but again, the impulse I think of every spirit-filled believer. Uh, needs to be one of of courage. Uh, there's so many admonitions in Scripture. Do not fear. Take heart. Uh, be of good cheer. Be uh, someone who has courage. Um, and also, Joseph, uh, you know, 
you see people in the Bible constantly uh, being directed to take a risk, obviously calculated risk, for the sake of the gospel, uh, for the sake of serving other people. And I know uh, in other segments of Washington Watch, uh, we've talked about how in the last year, there, are, there the mental crisis, uh, suicide, depression, all these things are skyrocketing. People, my goodness, right now meet, need help more than ever. And when it comes to the church, they, they need the gospel. They need the churches to be open. And so, again, I think the impulse, the posture of every pastor, every deacon, every elder needs to be how can we move towards making sure our churches are opening and ministering to the very real needs that are there? Because I think that's the template that Scripture gives us. I think you're right. And for the blog that you mentioning that I wrote this week, and you can find it at frcblog.com. And one of the features that uh, we are rolling out, and David and I are both part of this, is Worldview Wednesday. As we continue to kind of build out our worldview resources, every Wednesday we will be releasing um, a, a content that helps us think biblically about a particular idea uh, culturally. May or may not be explicitly political, but it's cultural and it's and it's relevant. And and this week we're talking about safety. Um, and you can find that at frcblog.com. And I hope on Wednesdays on Worldview Wednesday that you will begin to find that. Because we want to help people process through all this stuff. Yeah, we want to think biblically about what's going on in the Capitol and what they're debating. But we have to think about biblically, and David, you made this point at the beginning, about absolutely everything. We have to train ourselves because the culture is giving us so much input. And there are so many voices telling us how to think and what to think about everything that we have to have the discipline. And this is part of developing a biblical worldview of asking, you know, I know you have your opinions and they have their opinions, but what does God think? Because that's ultimately the only opinion that matters and wade through all the rest of that stuff. Now, as we talk about safety and try to figure out how to have the mind of Christ as we think about safety, are there examples historically, David, uh, that you can think of of how the church has dealt with plagues? This, you know, the coronavirus is far from the most serious and certainly not the first um, kind of health crisis that we've dealt with as a species. How has the church responded to these things in the past? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the the unfortunate marks of our age is that we have a historical illiteracy. You know, sometimes we think we're the the first generation to deal with some of these issues, and frankly, having an awareness of our history, understanding church history, can help. I think give us even courage to deal with the things we're dealing with now. I think of the the Spanish flu from a hundred years ago, uh, when the coronavirus uh, first started. I was on the show talking to Tony. And it was amazing, Joseph, to see that, yes, churches closed down for two, three, sometimes four or five weeks, uh, but then opened up their doors again because they, pastors, and you could see this in some of the articles and things that they were writing. At the time, it would have been newspapers where they were making their arguments that said, yeah, some of these things are are bad, uh, but what's worse is closing our doors and not giving the gospel a megaphone to go out. Uh, I remember another article I read was during the Black Plague when when Luther was around. Uh, you know, he he advised people to be careful, but he he said, you know, guys, it's important to realize uh, the people that he was ministering to. You know, death is something that uh, is inevitable. Death comes to us all, and so. Uh, whenever something scary or, or bad comes around, yes, again, we want to be careful, we want to be wise, we don't want to be reckless, but we want to be about the people 
Uh, we want to be the people who are about the work that God has called us to do. And I think the church historically has understood that. I, th- I think of the example of the Apostle Paul, uh, his ministry. You know, his ministry was the last—you can't say that safety characterized his ministry. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. Uh, he was uh, tortured. He was imprisoned all over the place. And he said it was worth it. Why was it worth it? Yeah. Because the message of the gospel needed to get out. And so, again, that's, I think— the, the, the driving force behind our, our engagement is to be people who are not fearful. Do you think that it's, uh, it's fair to conclude based on the uh, suffering that Paul went through that God just didn't care about him and somehow he was doing things wrong? No, not at all. Not at all, Joseph. And I think, you know, it's important for us to remember that, you know, God has never promised any of us safety, uh, any of us uh, these amazing lives without any pain. In fact, you see people throughout the Scripture actually deal with pain quite a bit. But when you do have that biblical worldview that you get from Scripture, you realize uh, that even the worst things that we go through, Joseph, are light and momentary compared to the surpassing weight of glory that awaits those of us who are Christians. That, that, that's in Second uh, Corinthians, I believe, is the, the, the promise that Paul makes. So I think we need to, to reframe the way we think through some of these things. And I think when we do that through the lens of Scripture, it'll give us that perspective um, that, that we can have that gives us hope and can give us uh, courage. Yeah, you, you were referring there to 1 Corinthians 4.17. That the sufferings of our earthly pilgrimage are not to be compared. They are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. And and I think one of the things that does help us in whatever the the kind of suffering that we have is is the ability to take on an eternal perspective and understand that, that the life that we know right now is is a moment. It's a blip. It's a you know. In in, in other words, some. It's sand that's just running out of the hourglass, right? And it's gone before it came almost. And if we overvalue that, then we end up, um, we we lose sight of the fact that we are really here living for eternity. We're just passing through on our way to eternity. And one of the reasons I think it's so important that we, we, we see the issue of safety correctly as God does and realize that he did not call us to a life of safety and look at the example of Jesus first and foremost for that, right? He left supreme comfort, supreme safety and, and, and humiliated himself in the sense that he became like a man to become like a safety was not his goal when he did that, of course. But for us, those of us who are not actually Jesus, but trying to be like Jesus, we have to keep in mind what the mission is in our life. And if, and, and, and caution is at times wise in the entire book of Proverbs, uh, much of the book of Proverbs, I'll say is, is wisdom about how to make your life less complicated, right? We don't need to be foolish. We don't need to cause problems. But if our, if our apprehension, if our hesitation, if our unwillingness to do something is derailing us from what God has called us to do, it may not be wisdom. It may be fear. Do you think that's true? I, I do, Joseph, and I, I just hope no one's, you know, misinterpreting what either one of us are saying here. And, you know, neither one of us are saying we should be throwing caution to the wind. You know, safety is important. Uh, you know, you're, you're a father. You want to make sure your your wife and your children are safe. I want to make sure my loved ones are safe. So, so safety is important, um, but it's not the greatest good. There are other things that are more important than safety, chiefly obeying God. 
uh, carrying out the, the, the Great Commission, uh, doing the things that he, he's called us to do. Uh, just a couple days ago, Joseph, there's a lady in my church from Orlando who kind of adopted me as her uh, grandson. My mom and sister were with her just two days uh, ago, and sh- she actually passed away uh, from a brain aneurysm, a brain aneurysm uh, unexpectedly. And uh, it, to me, it was just such a reminder that life is so fleeting. Uh, we're never promised the very next day. And so let's, let's be faithful. Let's be about doing what God has called us to do. Let's, you know, of course, take proper precautions, but we cannot be ruled by fear. And I, I think that's the message from this conversation that I want pastors and just uh, faithful Christians to take away from the conversation we're having. We cannot be ruled by fear. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, you know, words of Jesus in Matthew ten twenty eight, he actually did tell us to be afraid at one point in this passage. And he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And this is an important, and you made the point uh, earlier, it's an important point to um, land on is is recognizing that God wants us to be much more concerned about the state of our soul. If our soul dies, that's much, much worse than if our body dies. Even if we die, you know, in our prime, whatever we think of that is. But our, but we are right before God and we get to spend eternity with him. It's a promotion. We win. Yay. It's sad for people here, but it's not bad for us. It is really bad if we spend our lives preserving our shell, our flesh that is inevitably going to expire um, at the expense of our soul. And that's really what he's most concerned about. Now, uh, David, we got just about a minute left, but is physical safety the only thing that matters here? Uh, do you think this applies to other kinds of fears in terms of there's, there's social risks, there's risks to our reputations, not just our bodies. There's risk to our bank accounts and our businesses for doing what God wants us to do. Does that apply to those situations as well? I think it does, Joseph, Um, and I just always go back to the fact that you and I have been called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself at Caesarea Philippi to his followers said, take up your cross and follow me. He knew it wouldn't be easy, but that's the charge for all of us as disciples to take up our cross and follow him, and we can do that with the promise he gave us right before he ascended that he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And my goodness, how fortifying and encouraging is that to know that we follow a a Lord and Savior who is with us and empowering us to do the things he's called us to do. Amen. And that voice, of course, is David Claussen, who is the uh, director of our Center for Biblical Ethics, Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, excuse me. David, thanks again for taking your time. Thanks for your wisdom. Thanks for all that you do. And to those of you who at home, in your car, wherever you are, uh, as you head into the weekend, just remember... You are going to be tempted by fear, and that is normal, but God is with you. I'll leave you with the words of Jim Elliott, the, the missionary. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 